Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Kyrgyzstan's government looks more and more like the neighboring authoritarian governments. Less than one year ago, the government detained more than two dozen politicians, activists, journalists, and others that authorities said were planning to foment mass unrest. The government moved against the media also, deporting one investigative journalist and suspending operations of Radio Liberty's Kyrgyz service temporarily. In the last two weeks, Kyrgyz authorities have moved to shut down another independent media outlet, detained a leading opposition figure who is currently a serving member of parliament and is preparing to strip the constitutional court of its powers over a ruling that supported a woman's right to give her name, not the father's, to her children. To discuss what's happening in Kyrgyzstan, I'm joined by Erika Morat, Associate Professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., and author of many articles on Kyrgyzstan, and Suyanat Sultanalieva, Central Asia Researcher for Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan at Human Rights Watch. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, and let's start with you, Erica, and let's start with Kloop. Uh, what, what's going on with Kloop? Um, effectively, the authorities are trying to shut down Kloop, uh, one of the few, if not the only um, independent outlet, media outlet in Kyrgyzstan. Um, they started the process, started as they usually do by filing a suit, um, a complaint about uh, on Kloop and basically signaling that they're ready to take on this fight with um, the media outlet that's been truly independent throughout its existence, cutting-edge reporting, uh, investigations, and coverage of politics and just social life in Kyrgyzstan. It's a, it's a new law for Kyrgyzstan, that's for sure, that's for sure. Okay, thank you. Um, see, not the yeah, Kloop ran an article about this decision to to try to shut it down, and they had some interesting comments from Emobek Abdimanapal, who is pro- Bishkek prosecutor, excuse me, and he said that uh, Kloop's negative reports on what was happening in Kyrgyzstan uh, were causing, let's see, quote, has a negative emotional psychological effect on society, generating fear, anxiety, despair, and panic among a huge number of people. Uh, also, in the complaint or the the application against Kloop, it said that they didn't specify that they were a media organization, even though the name of the organization is officially Kloop Media Foundation. Well, how, what do you what do we, what to make of these kind of strange and vague charges? Yes, Bruce, thanks uh, for having me here, and it's a really timely, important discussion. And I really liked your overview of the things that are happening in Kyrgyzstan. I mean, we all know that Kyrgyzstan has a very dynamic political landscape and you know, socio-political landscape. But even for Kyrgyzstan, I think the way things have been going the past few weeks is just uh, quite uh, shocking uh, in that sense. And um, even though um, I do agree that you know, the there has been discussions that the recent uh, case of Azatik media would pave the way for further attacks by the state um, towards other independent media. And, you know, lo and behold, we see the uh, case against Klop media. And, um, of course, the, the whole discussion about the sharp criticism of the government that the prosecutor, um, you know, cites in the, in, in, in the request in the, in, in the uh, lawsuit, listing a number of articles, you know, and talking about hidden manipulation, dissatisfaction and distrust, which, um, you know, of the authorities among its readership, apparently the club's uh, publications inspire that um, in, in the readership. And I remember also he was saying uh, this would also lead to their 
uh, zombification, encouraging the readers to uh, join anti-government protests. Uh, and it's just really interesting that the prosecutor doesn't seem to realize that all of these things are not criminal. All of these things are constitutionally protected rights and freedoms of people, and not just constitutional, but also uh, by the country's international human rights obligations, right? So freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, people are free to be um, distrusting of the authorities, to be dissatisfied with it, to uh, express their dissatisfaction and all of these things, to join protests. Even if they're anti-government, there is nothing um, that prohibits this, right? It doesn't say, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't follow that if people are coming out to express their dissatisfaction with the state of things in a country, that they necessarily will um, attempt a coup. Uh, which, granted, okay, according to Kyrgyz laws, may be uh, like, you know, the attempt to change the constitutional regime or overthrow the regime is um, uh, punishable by law. But how do they make this jump? It's just, it's just absurd. Uh, then again, unfortunately, I'm, you know, as many experts, as many just people uh, in Kyrgyzstan, I think, have come to be, come to develop a more pessimistic kind of a stance or even a cynical stance towards what's happening in, in, in Kyrgyzstan. And it's like really not surprising when, it, because it's just, <laughs> I'm just expressing this, I guess, an overall uh, state of mind that there, there just won't, it feels like there won't ever be um, a moment when the state, the Kyrgyz government will behave in a more logical and a rational way that's, you know, following its um, own commitments before the Kyrgyz people. We're not even talking about its international commitments, uh, which probably um, triggers the authorities, um, the uh, newfound decolonial uh, sentiments in the authorities. Uh, but just, you know, the uh, commitments before the Kyrgyz people, right? Uh, it's, it's really unclear when the Kyrgyz state is going to be doing that. So in that sense, it kind of follows that um, there is this lawsuit accusing Klopp Media. And then the other thing that you mentioned about the uh, Klopp Media not being registered, not being registered in the register of uh, media organizations. Uh, but this also lacks um, a legal basis, uh, well, at least to according to the to the lawyer of uh, Club Media, because it's, a, I mean, it, it is a non-profit organization. According to the statute, the charter of uh, Club Foundation or Club Media, and within the charter, uh, it does have activities or chartered activities, which are um, among them providing inf an information platform for free expression. And information platform is exactly what Club is. It's a platform for people to express their opinion. And it also aims to raise awareness of youth in Kyrgyzstan on current sociopolitical, economic, um, and other events uh, that are happening in Kyrgyzstan or outside of it, which is exactly also what Klop Media is doing on its platform. So even then, you know, th there are so many legal gaps and just inconsistencies in the, in the lawsuit that in any country where there is judicial independence, and uh, effective, uh, you know, rule of law, this lawsuit wouldn't stand a chance. But then again, we're in Kyrgyzstan, and it is extremely unpredictable. Sometimes it seems like the laws work, and a lot of the times it seems like they don't, or they work only when they suit somebody who stands to benefit from it, within the government, I mean. Okay, thank you. Um, Erica, and I'll, I'll let you answer this too, see not in a minute. Um, Erica, the... the these charges that are against Klopp, um, they're, they're based on the state-appointed experts 
who reviewed their material, right, and concluded also, for instance, that people were leaving the Batken province because of Klopp's negative coverage. And it was it was causing people to either move somewhere else in Kyrgyzstan or leave the country altogether. Do we have we ever had any idea who these experts are? This is not the first time they've resorted to experts to translate someone's words or uh, and and come to some conclusion about their nefarious uh, their nefarious designs. I don't think uh, we know who the experts are. Maybe Sienat has a better um, understanding of who could be the people, the actual people behind coming up with such explanations. I want to uh, highlight just the, the 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 fact that perhaps it doesn't really matter who is behind um, coming up with arguments or, or trying to stitch together a legal case against Klopp. The big picture is that the current regime is coming up with explanations that will on the one hand, show them as uh, taking care of the society, of the marginalized groups, uh, like in Batkan or anywhere in the country. Um, and on the other hand, not coming across as if they are limiting the freedom of media, freedom of speech. And of course, it works for their supporters, their loyalists, the minority of the population in Kyrgyzstan, and it doesn't stand a chance um, as Sienat said, uh, with civil society and people who uh, really understand what freedom of speech is and civic freedoms are, um, they would would this fits? So the the case against Klub fits their pattern of governing for the loyal minority that elected them and ignoring the majority and especially urban population that disagree with them. And the this pattern is uh, seen with Klopp, was um, their arrest of uh, opposition leaders and their picking of any civic uh, initiatives that they feel like is threatening their positions. But they're achieving just the opposite effect right now, especially with Klopp, are united behind Klopp now and voicing a joint statement against uh, government actions, um, so as, as opposed to feeling threatened. And um, what they're doing, the current regime, what they're doing, they're intensifying divisions in the society and uh, making political uh, life in Kyrgyzstan ever more unpredictable, uh, with more people feeling feeling depressed about their actions and feeling like that there, there needs to be change and there needs to be um, more activism resisting onslaught of authoritarianism in the country. Okay, thank you. Um, so you're not, uh, do, you know who, do, do you know who these experts are? Any idea where they come from and, and who finds them? <laughs> uh, no, I same as Erica. I don't really know. It, it, it's, it's never mentioned. It's um, like there's always um, reference to these experts but um, to, it, it appears to me that these are people who work either. So, for example, when Parliament is passing draft laws or like considering uh, or initiating the draft laws, there's, they, they always have these court experts, I would call. So somebody who's, who's hired um, and obviously is already uh, has interest, has a conflict of interest uh, because they are representing the, 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 the site that's hired them uh, to supposedly do the, do the expertise. And I think it's the same case with the uh, court cases, with, uh, with the judiciary in general, uh, judicial system um, in Kyrgyzstan. And 
And there have been, I mean, I've, I've been, I've discussed this with some uh, human rights defenders and they're, they're always saying that, you know, the conclusions or like the documents, the certifications, the expertise documents that they, that they have to deal with uh, in these kind of cases, they just always seem extremely unprofessional, uh, just lacking in general knowledge of the law and the sphere in which, you know, the, they've been, um, into which they've been um, attracted to uh, for the specific case, right? So, yes, I would say I, I, I would, I'd be inclined to think that it's just, again, court experts, uh, as in court, not as in law court, but court um, of the state uh, or like the, the, the king, the monarch, the ruling regime's uh, experts, the court experts uh, in that sense. So, and um, I personally have no trust whatsoever in uh, conclusions and expertise that these people provide. Yes, I mean, there would be so much more trust if uh, the authorities sort of like try to uh, make it a, at least an, an open call, right, for the, for the expertise on specific cases. So there would be different kinds of opinions uh, given on a certain issue. Uh, but that doesn't really happen. Okay, thanks. So that's a good idea. So uh, I'm still amazed that, that uh, the experts came up with, essentially, uh, the reporting makes people feel bad. Uh, if it does, I suppose <laughs> yes, you, go to another, you could go to another media outlet for news if, if it really depressed you. Uh, but we do have to move on. Adahan Matamara, the leader of the Butun Kyrgyzstan Party, four-time presidential candidate. In fact, he ran against the incumbent, uh, Sadr Japarov. He's a deputy, and and now he's been detained. So I guess immunity for deputies is out, uh, obviously. Sianat, I'll start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about the case of Adahan Matamara and what's going on here? Um, it's it, it's uh, there's still, of course, details that need to be uncovered uh, about the case. As usual, um, not a lot is um, available to the media. But from what we've been able to, you know, uh, read or uh, well, I wouldn't even say ascertain, but yes, probably understand from what's already been covered about this case is that he's being accused of high treason uh, in ter- in relation to a 2009 protocol. It's not even a, an agreement. There's a, a huge misunderstanding where people think that it was a border talk kind of a deal, that it was um, a much higher level kind of a document, but apparently it was a protocol, like a working protocol that was signed uh, between the delegates um, of the meeting in 2009 concerning a like no man's land, I guess, at the time. Uh, and that's the um, a, a plot of land called Turkuche, uh in a Koktash uh, village uh, in the Batkan region. It's one of those areas that's um, that's been implicated. Well, not implicated. It, it was a place of the conflict both in 2021 and in last year's uh, conflict in September. Uh, there have been shootouts and um, quite bloody. But the problem is that and um, okay, so I I, I distracted. I got distracted um, and. The accusation is that uh, Adahan Madhumarov signed this uh, protocol, which, according to which Kyrgyzstan was taking this land, this plot of land, for lease, or was going to lease this land for 49 years. Um, and from what I understand, this was done so that there would be, like, the Kyrgyzstan would be able to construct the road that would connect Osh and uh, Isfana, I think, or some kind of a, a regional road that was of regional importance. And uh, from what I understand, this was a working solution at the time. Uh, however, what's happening right now, and, and it's not just that it started uh, this year, uh, it's um, some of the beginnings of this case, I think, were already last year or perhaps even in 2021. So it's been going on for quite a bit. And Madhu Marafi is being touted as the main 
person behind us because he was the head of the Security Council, Kyrgyz Security Council at the time. Um, however, if you look into this issue from the point of view of the charges presented to him, such as high treason, then one ha- one has to look further and understand that even a head of the Security Council wouldn't have the necessary authority to negotiate on behalf of the government, or of the state, right, of the country itself. The only person who is supposedly authorized to do this kind of stuff is the president. And Alekhaman Madhav even though he's been running for presidency for, for four times, as you mentioned, he has never been the president. So he has never had the authority to conduct these kind of negotiations. So in that sense, again, this is a... This is, of course, a very political case. But um, again, just like I've mentioned, just like in the case with Klop Media and many other cases in Kyrgyzstan, in a country with, uh, with working rule of law, this would not, again, stand a chance as a case, as a lawsuit. However, we live in Kyrgyzstan. So what happens next is anybody's guess. Okay, thank you. Um, Erica, you know, Madamarov is, is essentially the head of the opposition faction in parliament right now, because Putin Kyrgyzstan does have seats in parliament. And, and it, it seems a little bit ironic that he's being charged with high treason for a border deal with Tajikistan, when his problems really seem to have started because of his objections to a border deal with Uzbekistan. Uh, he was very vocal last year when they were talking about the Kemperabad Reservoir. What can you tell us about you know what happened to him since then? I mean, it, it, again, he, he's a serving deputy. This is really this is not just an opposition leader, but he's a serving deputy in parliament. To detain him seems uh, a bit extreme. So Mandavarov is a populist running against populists, right? The current regime is really populist um, a regime uh, that picks on those big uh, ideas about nationhood and uh, justifies autocratic, its autocratic and corrupt policies uh, with by presenting themselves as fighting for the nation. Um, same, you know, we can go back and look at how they uh, threw out the Canadian uh, gold mining company, um, how they dealt with um, Tajikistan and militarization of um, Kyrgyzstan's um, politics in general. So um, it's a pop and Madamadov as well. He is um, he's been a politician for um, as long as Kyrgyzstan has been independent. He has a loyal following. In his party and uh, the, the parts of uh, southern Kyrgyzstan, he is not too popular across the country. So he, it's it's a mixed bag of feelings towards him. Yeah, um, I completely agree with Sienna that this is um, it wouldn't stand a chance in a country guided by rule of law. Is the case uh, could, could it could have been a matter of public debate, national discussion change of regulations, but it looks like it is a bit of a witch hunt or trying to uh, clear any opposition in the parliament and trying to uh, suppress uh, politicians who have a strong following in parts in different parts of the country. It's a signal to other politicians not to be uh, vocal against the, the current regime. And yeah, so it's um, it's really the it's a complicated political case in uh, for for Kyrgyzstan, where you have an opposition leader who's been controversial himself in his own statements, his own actions. Um, at the same time, currently being challenged by the authoritarian uh, regime. 
So as much as there is uh, sympathy and um, mobilization against suppression of freedom of speech and uh, freedom of the media in Kyrgyzstan uh, around Klop case, I don't think that Madhumarev will be able to gather the same level of sympathy uh, in the Kyrgyz public, uh, maybe among his uh, supporters who will try to who will try to uh, continue to oppose his um, uh, the case against him, maybe organize rallies um, as it usually happens with opposition leaders. But it's it's slightly it's a slightly different dynamics than compared to what's going on with Globe. Okay, thank you. Uh, and a reminder that uh, we're talking about the recent crackdowns in Kyrgyzstan and the, the steep plummet into the abyss of authoritarianism. And my guests are Sianat Sultanaliyeva, Central Asia researcher for Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan at Human Rights Watch, and Erica Marat, associate professor at National Defense University in Washington, D.C. Um, let's move on to the Constitutional Court. Today they had the first reading of the draft proposal on the Constitutional Court, which essentially strips the judges of the right to make a final decision on almost anything. It's significant that Parliament just came back into session after their summer recess. And this was one of the, this was, I think, the first item um, that they dealt with. And this all stems from a problem, uh, not a problem, uh, a court case uh, that was first registered a couple of years ago by Alton Kapalova. And she wanted her children to have the matronymic, to have her, her name as part of their name instead of the father's, uh, because she said the fathers had never had any role in their upbringing. That actually, the Constitutional Court actually ruled in favor of that, and that has led to this situation that we have now. Um, so, Sinat, I'll start with you. Uh, what what is about to change for the Constitutional Court? It's a, the first reading. It pa- this this law passed in the first reading. There's still two more, but what happens if it passes? Well, um, I guess the biggest thing that's going to happen and, and, and the most important thing that's going to happen is that previously uh, the rulings of the constitutional co- court were irreversible uh, or they, they could not be annulled. Um, and that's, in, the, in a nutshell, that's exactly what the regime is trying to change. And it's been first initiated. And uh, as you rightfully noted, this has been just, just um, a direct reaction to the decision uh, that was actually also a mixed victory. It wasn't a complete victory for Kapalova uh, that allowed her, well, not allowed, like, because her children will still have to wait until they're 18 years old. Uh, but at least according to this court, uh, the, the constitutional court's decision, anybody uh, who's aged 18 and over would be able to change the patronymic in their passport to the matronymic uh, name. And of course, this is, um, even though it is being currently tied to this very strategic, very sensitive, apparently, as it turned out, <laughs> issue uh, in the Kyrgyz public discourse. The fact that the, uh, this uh, draft law was initiated, basically, amending the uh, rights of the constitutional court, it's just going to destroy the, the constitutional court in general uh, and making it uh, subject to potential influencing by the other uh, branches of power uh, in the future. So there is basically no certainty in the decisions of the constitutional court. And as you may have been, or, or as some others who are listening to us have noticed, uh, there have been not only this initiative, but also uh, an initiative to basically discharge all of the judges at the constitutional court, uh, again, specifically in relation to this decision uh, with uh, Alton Kapalo's case. 
Okay, thank you. Erica, uh, curious, now what does this whole move do, you know, that, that President Japarov has billed himself as like the defender of Kyrgyz traditions? This law seems absolutely reasonable that the Constitutional Court, uh, you know, that they upheld the right for this woman to change, the, you know, use the matronymic instead of the patronymic. And yet all of a sudden it's, it's to the level where Japarov has, has moved in. I mean, this is his proposal ultimately to strip the Constitutional Court really of any rights over this one issue. Right. Uh, A women's rights issue, basically. What does that say about the government? Yeah, it says that they will continue to use uh, the judicial system the way they want to. Constitutional court has not necessarily been an independent court. Um, It's really... It came as a big surprise that they ruled uh, in favor, partially in favor of uh, Kapalava's suit. And this was... An amazing victory, even though it was partial victory, but it was an amazing victory for uh, all women in Kyrgyzstan and men, I guess, all families, children. But it also became a lightning rod, uh, turned into a lightning rod in the society, uh, especially more conservative uh, groups that they didn't like the way constitutional court ruled. And uh, the regime basically leveraged that opposition in the society. I'm, I'm sure they were themselves. Uh, Tashif especially was not pleased with the ruling. And maybe they saw it as the court not not uh, meeting the expectations of the regime and becoming too independent. So they are trying to adjust um, the court to their needs, um, like previous regimes, but they're, but they're going one step further. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's Kapalov's case was the reason that set off this debate, but I don't think um, they're doing it just because of that. I think, I think we, what we really need to mention in the conversation today is that the current regime will wants to stay in power for as long as they can they're clearing up the political space be that courts independent media opposition voices no matter how marginal from uh, criticizing them uh, so that they can rule for uh, a long time beyond the current uh, uh, terms of power uh, they will continue to change the system uh, to their needs. And unfortunately, the situation we have in Kyrgyzstan today is that the current regime is not going to leave through elections. And it will uh, likely uh, only uh, give up power if uh, things in Kyrgyzstan get really bad again and crowds assemble again um, in Bishkek and across the country as they did previously to oust a corrupt, authoritarian, detached regime from power. When when this will happen, we don't know, but it looks like this is another violent regime change in the making in Kyrgyzstan, unfortunately. I tend to agree with you on that. Um, you know, I want to address one other thing here before we get into the final thoughts, and that's we'll go, go back to uh, the media situation for just a second, but more specifically the, the law on foreign foreign agent law that they're going to copy. Um, you know, we know that Azatik, for instance, is out of the woods. Uh, but how many other organizations, if this law, which is still on the still on the table, right? They haven't withdrawn it. So they could still pass that at any time. What, what, what will change for the other organizations that are nominally independent in Kyrgyzstan uh, once, once, if this is passed? Um, Sianat? Just to clarify, you mentioned nominally independent, as in they are not as independent? No, no. I mean, you know, the ones that are independent. Uh, I'm thinking of Azatik, mm. of course, first and foremost. But there's a lot of other organizations that aren't media organizations, uh, for example. Of course. 
um, that, that are also foreign funded uh, and, and work for democratic reforms and, and our rights, yeah. you know, issues of rights for various groups. Um, what happens to, you know, so we're really not out of the woods with even that, right? Yeah, yeah, no, we're not. I mean, in terms of the, the 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 technical issues, I guess it's not going to be as difficult. Although there is, of course, uh, going to be this uh, sort of a threshold, right? Because um, all of the organizations are going to have to be re-registered, and that's the point at which the um, authorities might refuse registration to some of the uh, organizations, and there are several criteria according to which they can do that. But Provided, I, I mean, I personally don't think that that's going to be the case for many organizations. Although I am maybe I'm being too optimistic in that uh, in that sense. But uh, what I think the most problematic part in this thing is that it, it is um, effectively again another uh, kind of a witch hunt, as in uh, all of the organizations would have to bear the like, or or they would be uh, how do you call what's the word? <laughs> they would be branded as foreign representatives or foreign agents. And that's going to destroy their reputations, their outreach into the rural areas. And I've, I, I'm, I'm always mentioning this in any kind of a discussion that I have, that civil society in Kyrgyzstan has already gone through so many blows to it that, um, you know, compared to how things were for civil society, for um, activists in general, say 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, uh, things were... Completely different. Uh, things were way be- better. There were all kinds of activities happening uh, in the rural areas. People were just really inspired to participate in all these um, events and roundtables and trainings. I don't know what not. Right. Uh, whereas nowadays, there's already this atmosphere of distrust towards civil society, towards any kind of nonprofit activity, and the passing of this law, the, the foreign representatives law, will just add into it and just kind of become the cherry on top of the processes that have already started um, and perhaps even a, like a logical conclusion of the process that has started um, almost also 10 years ago. It was in, I think it was, was it in 2014 or 13 when the first discussions uh, started about the foreign agents law in Kyrgyzstan? Yeah, I can't remember which one of those years it was. Um, Erica, let me move over to you, though, for a second. Kyrgyzstan, once, the, once called the island of democracy, I mean, at this point, is there anything above the water? Uh, is there any place that that's safe for uh, people that are interested in democratic reforms? Group, organization, anybody? <laughs> so I think it lost its uh, image as an island of democracy a while ago. <laughs> we call Kyrgyzstan as an isle uh, of democracy, uh, island of democracy, uh, just because by, by habit. And thanks to its uh, still dynamic civil society um, and still quite dynamic media landscape, all the laws and lawsuits and initiatives in Kyrgyzstan, they signal uh, this notion of randomness, what dictators like to do. They will do things randomly and slowly. They suppress activism and uh, freedoms randomly by attacking some groups while uh, sparing other groups, but uh, also in hopes that they will scare um, other groups uh, from criticizing the regime or other politicians. We see the same patterns in Kyrgyzstan. I think that it's a temporary state for Kyrgyzstan. Uh, We had uh, really deep dives into authoritarianism in the past as well, under Akhaev, under Bakiev, notoriously. 
And it's really uh, once the, the, the society is just, especially civil society, and I'm not just talking about NGOs, I'm talking about individual activists, uh, community groups, uh, various grassroots organizations. Um, they are, um, there's just too much of a habit of uh, thinking and speaking independently. There is a lot of disagreement with the government. When this becomes a really big problem for the government, like it did, for instance, for Bakiev and Akaev, and even sometimes for Atambayev, Jean Bekov, I mean, basically every single president, it's, it's hard to predict. But the, the, the dictatorships in Kyrgyzstan survive only for so long. Uh, give it a couple of years, uh, who knows, maybe five years, maybe a year, there will be a huge backlash. And it won't necessarily come from, quote unquote, um, organized civil society. It might come from just uh, population in general, because what autocrats in Kyrgyzstan tend to do is once they clear up the political field, then they start really uh, doubling down in corruption and squeezing small businesses, medium businesses, just like it would happen to Bakiev. And it just becomes impossible for a regular person to survive in Kyrgyzstan. And that's when the backlash begins. So we are on this trajectory right now, again, unfortunately. But yes, this this is a quite depressing time for Kyrgyzstan. It's not going to be forever like this, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess it's time we got to wrap this up to, for last thoughts. I'm just curious, you know, in, in to put this in a historical perspective for Kyrgyzstan, how destructive has this government been in the last few years to to the institutions in the country? Uh, you know, including the media, um, including civil society. I mean, we you mentioned. Kiev and, and Akayev, and of course we remember the days, but it seems like this this government has gone even further than them. Um, so you're free to talk about anything you want in your last comments, but but keep that at my proposal in mind too, please. Sianat, will you start? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, yes, I guess um, one thing that really uh, stands out for me with this government is that it's it's gotten really specialized, I guess, because a very skilled in uh in rhetorics and well again yes it, it, it is a very and i guess that's um and erica mentioned that it is a populist regime probably more so than the other regimes um and um so it's it's very adept at uh, this populist populist rhetoric um which is also national it's nationalist it's also anti-western anti-developmentalist logic type of stuff i mean i could even say that they do have some rhetoric from post-colonial or decolonial kind of uh, discourse. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a really interesting uh, mix from a very disengaged point of view. But for somebody who is living in this country and, and is a citizen of this country and is very uh, like worried for the future of Kyrgyzstan, um, it is more than just uh, interesting. It's, uh, it's very dangerous and scary how well they're able to to use this, how well they're able to really manipulate the opinions of uh, of the people. Because uh, I think we've mentioned this uh, a few times uh, during the call that a lot of the people actually do support. Like it is a very, it is um, a minority, although I'm not so sure even, I'm, I, I don't know if I would agree it is a minority that the state is, uh, is serving. Perhaps it's actually a majority now. 
uh, of the people, people in the rural areas who, um, and I just wanted to note on the, uh, comment on that back when Erica was talking about it, because it's exactly what the regime is doing, right? It's like divide and conquer, which again, nothing new, everybody does it. But here, especially, we're seeing that they're really playing on this rural versus urban, educated versus uneducated, or, um, I don't know, there's also this uh, Balkonsky versus the rest of the uh, country or the people who live in Bishkek and the rest of the country, right? Again, nothing new, nothing unique. But this is is really being uh, blown out and being sort of like fed by the by the regime. So in that sense, um, it, it looks like the that uh, the regime has the support and they're playing up uh, the nationalist populist discourse uh, for this support. And uh, and that's what I find um, especially dangerous, I guess, uh, compared to the previous regimes. Uh, but um, I do want to believe. Uh, in this sentiment that it will get worse. It's okay. I'm okay with it getting worse as long as it will get better. Uh, so here's to hoping that it will get better. Okay, thank you. Um, Erica, you know, you'll remember the days when Omar Bek Tekibayev was the Speaker of Parliament and was t- t- was telling President, then President Bakiyev, uh, he should, he called him a dog. He said he should take advantage of the first tree that he came across to hang himself. Uh, Almaz Bek Atambayev was also in Parliament. He called Bakiyev a political corpse because he didn't do anything. That That's gone, right? We, we don't hear anything like that coming out of Parliament. So I'm curious your opinion. I mean, how much how damaging has this been to the, the establishments in Kyrgyzstan? Very damaging, very damaging. And to your question about institutions, institutions are completely hollow in Kyrgyzstan. They don't really mean much. Institutions are all about loyalties, brokering different deals with the regime, with MPs and ministers constantly change uh, depending on who is more favorable to the regime versus who is uh, more effective. Um, so it's the institutions don't really matter anymore, unfortunately. Uh, the current regime's change in the parliament that they shrank the number of MPs is also quite damaging because it's much easier to control a, a smaller parliament than a parliament that is uh, that has more voices in it and more competition. So, yeah, it is pretty depressing. Um, and I agree with what Sianat says, that maybe we're not talking about just the minority of people supporting this regime. Maybe there is more. Maybe there is a majority because... That there is, uh, that it's a, it's a mix of authoritarianism and populism. It's a skillful narration of kleptocratic, autocratic tendencies, uh, and mixing them up with, uh, nationalism, patriarchy, traditionalism, you, you name it. So it is, yeah, uh, it is, it is a different type of kleptocracy, autocracy in Kyrgyzstan. Um, hopefully at some point, uh, people will see for what it is and, um, move on to, um, um, move on to greater freedoms. That's our hope, of course. Okay. Thank you. And I suppose on a, a kind of follow up, I'll add that, uh, although Sadr Japarov won with the majority of the votes in his election, if you look at the total population of Kyrgyzstan, less than one in five Kyrgyz citizens actually cast their vote for him at the time. So there is, even if the majority is supporting him, they certainly did not at the polling booths uh, when he was there. The majority didn't even bother to show up and cast ballots. So that's something to consider in the future, too. I'm sure we're going to get back to this topic 
because like I said, just in the last 10 days, so much has gone on there. Um, they seem to be picking up speed. So, But I thank you both for being on the show. Thank you, Erica, and thank you, Sianat, for being on the program today to discuss this. Uh, a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asia Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.